You are listening to the Rooted Ministry Podcast, a conversation advancing gospel-centered ministry to youth. This episode is audio from a plenary session at our 2019 conference in Chicago. For more information about Rooted, visit our website at www.rootedministry.com. So I am actually uh, thrilled to be the last speaker. It's always great to have everyone else awesome go before you uh, and then to be left with the last slot. But actually, what I want to do actually um, this morning, afternoon, is um, actually talk to you guys a little bit about Moses. Um, I have been reading Moses devotionally this year just for my sake, uh, just wanting to get to know this man who uh, has, takes up so much of our Old Testament. Um, Moses is one of the most impressive characters in the Bible. Uh, he's literally kind of a superhero type figure in the scriptures. He's mentioned kind of all over the place as a paragon of faith. Um, there are even Hollywood movies about him, and depending on which generation you come from, when you think of Moses, you think of Charlton Heston, right? Uh, you think of the Prince of Egypt, and you hear Val Kilmer's voice. Uh, or there's another generation that sees Christian Bale, and it's just confusing. Like, what is Batman doing as Moses? This is confusing. Um, he's such an important figure in the Bible. Um, and so what I want us to do is we're actually going to go to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 34. And while you guys turn there, I want to give you just a little bit of context here. This is the uh, last chapter in the book of Deuteronomy. And uh, it's actually talking about Moses' death. And as I was reading through, again, uh, Moses' life on a devotional level, there was just something about reaching the end of Moses' journey that just hit me like a ton of bricks. And just the, the weightiness of this particular chapter, I think, has much to offer to us, especially for those of us who are serving the youth. Because our context is unique. Our context is unique. And it's not just because we're working with students, but there is something about the fact that we graduate students every year that I feel like is really important for us to understand is a part of what we do. Now, children's ministers, they absolutely graduate students every year as well, but I think there's very something specific about student ministry where we are trying to walk alongside them and live life with them. And then at the end of the year, at the end of the summer, we're always sending a group out and we're always welcoming a group in. And that's a very unique context. So I want you to keep that in mind as we go through um, just this, this particular passage. And we have a couple other places we're going to go to, so um, keep your Bibles open. So we're going to Deuteronomy chapter 34, and uh, we're going to read through verses 1 through 5. Verse 1. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is the opposite of Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev and the plain that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. Now, this is the part that really weighed on me. So you're telling me that at the end of Moses' life, he gets to go up to the mountain, see the promised land, but he doesn't actually get to go over there. What's going on? It seems to me that what I've read from Exodus to Deuteronomy, 
what I've seen of Moses' life and the way that he leads, that he should be able to go to the promised land. See, there's a context here that I want us to understand about Moses' life, because there's really three distinct phases of Moses' life, and I want to go through this so that we can better understand what's going on here, because it seems to me, just on this first reading, that something doesn't sound right. And in order for us to see the beauty of this, we need some context. So Moses has, uh, his life is made up of three distinct phases. So in the next slide, you'll see that it's kind of broken up into 40-year chunks. So the first 40 years of his life, he's in Egypt. He's born into a slave mother, and he is hidden by the authorities because they weren't allowed to have sons. He was rescued eventually by Pharaoh's daughter. So unlike the prince of Egypt, historically not accurate, he is Pharaoh's grandson, adopted grandson. And because of Pharaoh's daughter, uh, he becomes essentially a Hebrew Egyptian. So Hebrew in ethnicity, but Egyptian in culture. But at some point, that culture clash occurs, and at 40 years old, he ends up seeing the slavery for what it is. He ends up seeing for the evil that it is, and he tries and attempts to rescue one of the slaves, and in the midst of that, ends up murdering one of the Egyptian guards. And through that, Pharaoh finds out, wants to kill him, and so Moses flees Egypt, and that leads to the second phase of Moses' life. So the next 40 years, he's in the wilderness of Midian, and it's here that he settles down, finds a wife, has kids, and makes a career out of being a, becoming a shepherd. And his life is great. Every day he wakes up, gets to touch fluffy animals, gets to play with his kids. Life is awesome. And then he turns 80 years old, 80 years old. And God comes to him in the midst of a weird phenomenon, this burning bush that's burning yet not burning, this paradox. And Moses is called to go back to Egypt and go and pull the slaves free, God's people free. At the age of 80, you're never too old to be called into another season of ministry, that's for sure. But the idea here is that when Moses is called, his life is comfortable. He's okay with where he is. And God calls him to do this thing. And God's with him, and there's this, obviously, this massive uh, set of miracles, and God shows up, shows his power to the world, defeats Pharaoh, Moses crosses through the Red Sea, Pharaoh and the chariots, they're all, they all die. And it's the stuff that's literally made out of Hollywood movies and then what happens? It's the last phase of his life. The last 40 years of his life, he spends in the wilderness. And at the end of 120 years, we get to Deuteronomy chapter 34, and he goes up to the mountain. He gets to see the promised land, which 40 years ago he was promised he would get to go to, and he doesn't get to go. What happened? Because the crazy thing is, the thing that makes this even more like, ugh, that makes you just feel more stuck as you hit the the end of Deuteronomy 34, is he was close. See, at the end of that 80th year, after he had rescued the Israelites out uh, out of Egypt, they actually got to the edge of the promised land, right? Moses sent out um, scouts into the land, and the land was good. It was so good that when the scouts came back, they had a pole on which they carried a bunch of grapes. Like the grapes were so big and so fascinating that the scouts put it on a pole and carried it in. But the people did not believe that they could go in there. After all that God had done to rescue them from the Egyptians and from Pharaoh, at the end of the day, 
the people couldn't have enough faith to say, let's trust in God, let's take the promised land. He's clearly given it to us. And so what does God do? He sets them off into the wilderness. Moses was there. He was at the edge. But he doesn't get to go at that point. So 40 years later, maybe he should be able to go. I mean, he suffered with the people for 40 years. What's happening here? The crazy thing about this is that there are moments like this in youth ministry too. There are moments where you think ministry is going really well, and then something happens, and you're just like, what is happening? Right? Like you're on an international mission trip. The mission trip went phenomenal. Everything went according to plan. God moved in the students. God moved in you. God moved in the, uh, the mission field. And then you get to the airport, and you find out one of the guys lost his passport. That's such a youth ministry thing. Right? That actually happened at our church uh, not too long ago, and he was, this guy was stuck. Everyone else desperately wanted to get home. They literally emptied their pockets of cash and said, here, here's some money, you deal with it, we're out of here. But there's always the leader that has to stay, right? You can't just totally ditch the guy. There's always someone that has to stay, and it's always going to be the youth pastor. It's always going to be the youth worker. It's always going to be the youth leader. And so in those moments, you're just like, oh, like what happened? God, I thought we, were, I thought we had a plan. I thought we had a plan to make this smooth. I thought we had a plan to bless everybody. I thought you were going to bless me. Look how hard I worked to get here all the months of training. And here I am sitting in an airport just tired and exhausted and wondering what went wrong. Moses identifies with us in that for sure. But in order for us to really understand what's happening, we have to dig a little bit more into Moses' relationship with God. Because this has, Deuteronomy 34 has something to do with God. So I'm going to ask you to grab your Bibles, and we're going to go now to Exodus 33. We're going to go to Exodus 33. So this is towards the beginning of the journey. They had just come out of Egypt. The people have disobeyed the Lord by worshiping a golden calf. And God basically tells Moses, you know what? These people, oh man, these people. So, you know, we're going to go to the promised land, but I'm not going to go with you. I'm going to send an angel. And um, this is after that conversation. So verse 11. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. What is the defining characteristic of Moses' relationship with God? It's found in verse 11. Moses spoke to God face to face as a man speaks to a friend. So Moses is a friend of God. We need to know this. We need to know that the relationship that God has with Moses is super tight. So tight, in fact, that when God said to Moses, hey, you know what, I'm actually not going to go with you guys, because if I do, I think I'm going to wipe everybody out, so I'm going to send an angel. Moses is close enough to God to be able to come before him and to say, wait, but God, you promised. Look at verse 12. You promised. You said to me, bring up this people, but you did not let me know whom you will send with me. 
Yet you have said, I know you by name and have also found favor in my sight. In other words, God, didn't you promise that you would be with me? Didn't you promise that I have found favor in your sight? Didn't you promise that you know me? So verse 13, therefore, if I found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in you. In other words, God, if this isn't the plan, I'm confused because I thought you know me and I know you and I have found favor in your sight. I'm confused about this plan because I thought originally you were going to go with me and it turns out that that's not true anymore. So I'm a little confused, but hey, I'm humble. I want to learn before you. Just teach me your way so I understand how to lead the people of God. And you see Moses' humility coming out. And this is actually, this idea of like being known by God and knowing God, this is reflected in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 8.3 says, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. And the idea is that's how close, and this, this concept of being known by God is all throughout the Old Testament. But remember, we have to remember, in the beginning when, when Moses himself wrote Genesis and talked and used that language, it's coming from the fact that he knows God. It's a very personal word to him. And then, in verse 14, what does he say? Chapter 33, verse 14. And he said, so this is God, and he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. What does God say? Yeah, okay, fine. Let's, let's do this. And look at verse 15. And he said to him, so that's Moses says to God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us? So we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. What's interesting is Moses is still in like convincing God mode, right? He's still thinking like, I got to convince God that he's got to go with us. He's got to go with us. When actually in verse 14, God already said, sure, I'm going with you, right? It's like when my son gets in trouble, Right? And he's just like thinking of excuses and he just has a million excuses, but I've decided already before I'm just gonna go ahead and forgive him no matter what he says. And he just keeps going on and on and on and on. And I'm like, hey, buddy, it's okay. You're fine. And he's like, what? That's what's happening here. God is approaching and coming down to Moses as a friend and he responds as a friend. And you see this closeness that they have. So verse 17, God repeats himself again, and the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. He repeats that. Moses, hey, I know who you are. You have found favor in my sight. Let me repeat that so that you know that I am with you. And then Moses gets bold. Look at verse 18. Moses said, please show me your glory. So I just want to pull out a leadership principle from here, because I think one of the things that we as leaders need to do is pray boldly the way Moses communicates with the Lord. Moses does not see God not coming with Israel as the final word. He knows who God is, and he knows that God had intended to come with him, and so Moses comes down on his knees, and he comes before the Lord and says, no, isn't this what you promised? And he has this bold request, God, you have to come with us. And if you're not going to come with us, then you need to make it really clear to me. You need to teach me your ways because I need to understand this. And we as youth workers and youth leaders, we need to come before the Lord and pray bold prayers for our group as well. When he says, show me your glory, I mean, what is Moses asking? Moses is asking, God, you say that I am known by you, but I want to fully know you. That is a bold, bold request. And we know that what God says afterwards is okay, but not okay. Okay in the sense that, yes, 
I'm gonna come by, but I'm gonna hide you behind this rock. And as my, as my um, glory passes by, you'll see the backside and I'm gonna declare my name over you. I'm gonna declare my attributes over you. And Moses gets to experience that. And every time Moses goes to speak with the Lord, his, his face is glowing, like it's freaky. The Israelites are like, please veil yourself, it's too scary. And all of that is, an, is pointing to the fact that as youth workers, as youth leaders, as people who are in, entrusted with the souls of our students, we have got to pray these kinds of prayers. This kind of heart needs to be in us to pray for our students to know God in this way, to pray that the presence of the Lord is with our ministries and our groups and our churches in this way. And I'm always convicted by this. You know, I come from a Korean church, and the Korean church loves to pray. We are intense about praying. The Korean church, most Korean churches gather together at 5.30 a.m. in the morning every single day. By the way, my, the church that I go to is named Church Every Day for that reason. We literally do church every day. Monday through Saturday, there's morning prayer from 5.30 to uh, 6.30 a.m., and then people go to work. And then Sunday is our Sunday service, so we are literally church every day. And it's part of the, the cultural DNA that we have to pray this way. But I'll, I'll say, as a second-generation Korean-American, like, I just don't have that kind of fire that my first-generation parents did. And part of it is I just didn't suffer as much as they did. Because suffering causes you to drop to your knees. See, when Moses thought that God wouldn't go with them, he became desperate. Do we pray desperately for our students to know the gospel, to be saved? Do we pray desperately for them to be rescued from their sin? Do we pray desperately that they would know Jesus the way we know Jesus? And that's what Moses does. And Moses' character all throughout the um, first, uh, four books of the Bi- uh, first five books of the Bible, I mean, he is willing to stand for his people and he's willing to come before the Lord and say, God, don't kill them for your name's sake. Save them, and if you have to punish somebody, I want you to take my life instead. That's the kind of leader Moses is. Now, does this help us understand Deuteronomy 34? No, not really. Because <laughs> you're like, wait a second. He is a friend of God. He's that close to God. He's that bold. And he gets to go to the mountain, but he doesn't get to go to the other side. That doesn't make sense. Right? Kevin. Exodus 33 did not help me make more sense of Deuteronomy 34. What are you doing? You're a terrible preacher. <laughs> and I get that, but you need this as context. You need to know how close Moses and God were, actually, in order for Deuteronomy 34 to make sense. But you do need to know another chapter of Moses' life. So I'm going to ask us now to turn to Numbers chapter 20. Numbers chapter 20. And in Numbers chapter 20, we're going to read an episode that's very, very familiar in the sense that Israel is going to do something that they have done all throughout the time that they've traveled with Moses, which is what? Complain and complain and complain. And so we're going to read an episode of their complaining. And yet this episode is different. This episode occurs after the death of Moses' sister, Miriam. This is a woman who essentially was a second mom to him. If you'll remember, uh, she was the one that kind of hung out on the Nile River as Moses, as a baby, was traveling down the Nile. Um, So this is after the death of Miriam, verse 2. Now, there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. (sighs) Verse 2 just makes you tired. 
Like, if you know Moses' story, it's like, now there was no water in the congregation. What you would hope for is, and so the people learning their lesson, the 1,900 other times that this happened, would say, hey, let's pray. God's going to bring us water. Let's not bother Moses and Aaron. They're busy. They're faithful leaders. Let's leave them alone. Let's just pray for water on our own. God's faithful, right? Nope. That's not what they do. They assembled themselves together. Do you know how hard it is to assemble people together? They put so much effort into getting together, not to pray though, to complain. Do I sound like I'm venting here? Verse three. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Wow. Right? Like this is an older, right? This is the generation that has traveled in the desert for 40 years and they're still saying the same thing. You know, you know the, the guys that we left behind like 10 years ago as we were circling around the desert? Oh, they're in a much better place than we are because we're thirsty. <laughs> Verse four, why, why? Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. And oh my goodness, the things that I would want to say back. This is not my fault. This is your fault. We could have been in the, you know, we could have been in the promised land 40 years ago had you just looked at the grapes and thought to yourself, those grapes look delicious, let's go get some. But that's not what you did. You did the unbelief thing, and here we are again and again and again. But look at the humility of verse 6. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. Wow. They fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take your staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. And you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. So they fall before the Lord, and clearly God sees their need. God meets their need. And he tells Moses, speak to this rock in front of everybody. Use your words to communicate to this rock in front of everybody, and I will be faithful to bring the water out. And this episode has happened before. They've seen this before. They know this one. Verse 10. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with the staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. Something happens between verse 9 and 10. And I don't know what it is, but it's a very human response. It is frustration. It is the fact that Miriam, his sister, died just before this. I can only imagine the emotional state that Moses is in. And he is frustrated, and he is at the end of the rope. And he looks out onto the people, these people who he has traveled with for 40 years, these people who he has ministered with for 40 years, these people whom he has loved for 40 years. And in a moment of frustration, and in a moment of unbelief, and in a moment of just feeling the stress and the weight of everything that was happening in his ministry, he called them rebels. He took his staff and he strikes the rock twice. 
We've, we've been in frustrating situations before, especially with our youth students, especially in transportation, especially in gathering students together. And we have thought way worse things than, these kids are rebels. <laughs> we have used far more colorful language. And the one time, the one time Moses is like calling them rebels and out of frustration hits this staff of the rock. Look at God's response in verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Wow. Wow. Are you serious, God? Are you telling me that because of a moment of frustration, that everything Moses has done for the last 40 years, he doesn't get to step into the place, he doesn't get to walk into the place that he's been dreaming about for 40 years? I mean, that, that can't be right. That can't be right. And there are moments in ministry where you feel this way, where you feel like, I have given so much to my students. I have given so much to my parents. I have cried with them. I've seen them graduate, and I've looked for schools that they can go to to enjoy their college experience and find a church that they can plug into. I have served them. I have prayed for them. They have no idea. In this room, we know. We know what it's like to do all of that emotional and spiritual work in the background. And then there are days where it's just totally, it just feels like nothing is happening. And you're like, but God, like, I'm not even doing this for me. I'm doing this for you. I would love to see something. And it's always something small that just breaks you. It's like, you're in the midst of doing ministry and then you text that one student and they just ghost you, right? I know you read this text message. You have read receipts on. Respond, man, right? And you get, you, you get that and you're just like sitting, staring at your phone and you just like cry because the weight of everything else. And it's just that thing that just broke you. And I've got to imagine, like, look, okay, again, Exodus 33 at the beginning of the 40-year journey, when God says, I'm not going to go with you into the land, Moses is like, uh-uh, God, you promised. Oh, you said it. You said it. You said it. You said it. But interestingly enough, at the, at, in this particular passage, after 40 years has passed, what is Moses' response? Verse 13. These are the waters of Meribah where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. We actually don't get Moses' response. We just get a sentence that talks about God's holiness. So, so what's going on here? Moses has learned about God's holiness for the last 40 years. And in those 40 years, Moses has been sanctified to the place where he understands he's not God. And this is the leadership principle number two. We are not God. We are not God. God is holy, and our students need to know that, but we need to know that as leaders first and foremost. 
Because the truth is, when we share the gospel with our students, we have to understand that sin is what separates us from a holy God. And if we think that Moses calling the people rebels and striking the rock is not that big of a deal, we don't understand God's holiness fully. God's holiness demands full obedience, perfect righteousness. Even calling the people rebels, even under the stress, striking the rock, that is not okay. God is that holy. Uh, There was one time where I went to a Walgreens Uh, waiting for some medicine, and Walgreens has makeup. They sell makeup. And at the end of this makeup aisle table, uh, what's it called, the end end cap display, there was a giant poster of three women's faces all scrunched up together, and it was for a, um, I don't remember the makeup company. If I did, you'd make fun of me anyway. So it's a pretty pretty woman makeup company. It was just called Pretty Woman Makeup Company. And uh, there's three, three ladies, and their faces are here, here, and here. And the one in the center, the biggest face, somebody had taken a Sharpie and drawn like the tiniest little subtle mustache. Like just this little tiny thing. I thought it was so funny, because I love that kind of like slight sense of humor, right? It wasn't like this big old mustache. It was just this tiny mustache. And I was like, that's clever and quick. I like this guy, right? But I had a thought, like, okay, imagine if I had a marker and I had the Sharpie and I was walking by and I thought to myself, let's do this sneaky little thing. And as I was drawing the sneaky little mustache, one of the Walgreens employees caught me, right? What would be the appropriate punishment for a grown man (laughs) with a Sharpie marking up a Walgreens poster? What's the appropriate punishment? You know, hey, sir, can you leave the store? (laughs) That's really inappropriate. Maybe that, you know, slap on the wrist. Maybe they would make me pay for the poster. Maybe at the worst of the worst, they ban me from the store, right? But to, like, call the police and arrest me, that would be a bit much, correct? I mean, at least in California, it would be a bit much. But what if I was at the Louvre Museum in Paris? And what if I had the same marker And I had the same intention of going up to a woman's face, a little more famous, name's Mona Lisa. (laughs) And what if I walked up to her pretty little face and I took my Sharpie and I made the same exact mark? What would be the appropriate punishment? I mean, that is a priceless painting. I'm going to be in jail for longer than Christopher York. I'm going to be in jail for a long time. He had a six-year sentence. Because it's a priceless painting. You can't replace the Mona Lisa. It's so appropriate that my punishment would be so much worse. But it's the same motion. It's the same thing. It's the same marker. It's the same hand motion. Why is it that when I mark up a Maybelline poster versus a Mona Lisa, why is there such a stark difference between the punishment of the two? Because it's not just the action, it's who you do the action against that matters. And because God is far holier than we can ever possibly imagine, every sin is punishable by eternal death. Because God is that valuable, God is that holy, God is that precious. And that's what Moses had to contend with. And in that moment when Moses struck the rock and the water came out and he turned around and was probably thinking to himself, ah, shoot, that's not what God told me to do. And when God comes to him and says, you know, I told you to speak to the rock. You know, I didn't tell you to strike the rock, right? 
So because you did not uphold me as holy, that's the language God uses. You marred my holiness before the people as my representative. You are no longer allowed into the promised land. And Moses doesn't fight back. He accepts that because he knows that God is this holy. There's a weight to this. There's a weight to this. And so you get to Deuteronomy 34, and you get to that fifth verse. And what are you left with? You should be left with an understanding that, wait, this is right based on God's holiness. But can I tell you something? Emotionally, I don't like it. I don't like it. I know theologically that's correct. I know doctrinally speaking, of course God is holy. But God, couldn't you just let him take a few steps into the promised land? Right? Like take a grape off one of the things, just eat a grape and then die. Like just something to be like, well done, good and faithful servant. Just something, like I just want that from Moses. But God is way better than we can possibly ever imagine. Turn with me to go back to Deuteronomy with me. Deuteronomy 34. And we're going to read the rest of this here. If my Bible would turn there. All right. Look at verse 5 again. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. Verse 6. And he buried him. And he buried him. Who's he and who's him? He is God and him is Moses. So so even though Moses doesn't get to step into the promised land, what verse six teaches us and tells us is that God buries Moses. What's the picture we're supposed to have in our head? See, uh, I'm sure we've all been to funerals and when it comes to funerals, the people that prepare the, the funeral and the procession, the burial service, all of those things, the people that prepare that are the ones who are closest to the person that died. And incredibly, God comes to Moses as Moses dies and God buries him. God digs the hole in the ground. God lays down his servant's body into the ground. God does not does not contradict his holiness with his grace. God finds a far more beautiful way to have both of those things held in tension and yet given us a picture that's mind-bogglingly beautiful. Who would have thought that this would be the end of Moses' life? I mean, his family, Moses' actual family is not on the mountain with him. We don't get a sense that his wife is there. We don't get a sense that his children are there. It's the one who Moses has been closest with. That's the person that buries Moses and it's God. Wow. And then you get some interesting detail afterwards. Because he was buried in the valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Um, The book of Jude actually tells us, I don't have a slide for this, but the book of Jude actually tells us that at some point, the archangel uh, Michael and Satan have a battle over Moses' body, which is just, I mean, Jude's a hard book. (laughs) 
And she's like, what, what, what is happening here? Like, there's such mystery around this. But I take such comfort in those first four words of verse six. And he buried him. Now, if that weren't enough, if that weren't enough, this is not the last time we see Moses. This is not the last time we physically see Moses. Moses actually comes back in the New Testament. In Luke chapter 9, verse 28 through 36, this is what it says. Now about eight days after these sayings, he, that's Jesus, took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Sounds like somebody we were just talking about. So Jesus gets glorified in a way that's far greater than Moses' kind of little bit of glorification as the glory of the Lord bounces off of him. But we're meant to combine these things in our mind. Verse 30. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Wow. So Moses is hand buried by God. And then in the New Testament, as Jesus is thinking about Jerusalem and as he's thinking about the cross and as he's in anguish, the transfiguration occurs and God sends down who to encourage Jesus, Moses and Elijah. And I wish we had time to get into Elijah as well, but basically these are two men who worked their butts off for the Lord and did not get to see the promise fulfilled. These are two men who went up to the mountain and saw potential but didn't get to cross over. And these are the very two men that come alongside Jesus, knowing that Jesus is going to be the one to cross over the finish line. And I love that. I love that they're invited into that process. How good is God to do that for Moses and Elijah? And then it says in verse 34, as he, Peter, was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, the chosen one with whom I am well pleased, listen to him. And I put that in brackets because that comes from the other gospels. But essentially what's happening here is the very thing Moses was praying in Exodus chapter 33, that whole idea of God, are you pleased with me? Do you know me? Are you going to come with me? God declares over his son Jesus in the presence of Moses and Elijah, reaffirming his love for them. Now I'm going to ask you to look at Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 9, and we'll close with this. Because it doesn't end here. Moses' story doesn't end here. It goes to verse 9 and it says this. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. See, Moses isn't the one that's going to take them into the promised land. It's going to be a man named Joshua, a man named Yeshua. This should cause us to pause for a second because we need to realize something. You know, in the New Testament, we call the Son of God Jesus in English, but in the Greek, his name is Yeshua. This was on purpose. Why does God not allow Moses to go into the promised land? Because that's not Moses' job. That is Yeshua's job. You and I, we cannot take our students into that place of salvation. 
We cannot bring our students and force our students and program our students and fund our students and excite our students into the gospel, into salvation. That's something that Jesus does. And so that burden is off of us. That burden is off of us. We don't have to do that. That's a work that the Lord himself does. But God uses every single moment, every labor of Moses, everything Moses has done with his life to get the people to that place where Jesus takes them to the other side. And I want to encourage you with this because this is our story. Every single year, as we graduate students and welcome new students in, I want you to know, because this, is, this has been just the craziest thing for me to deal with in the last 15 years, is having the weight of all of those students leaving. Like, I have been dealing with this because I realized somewhere around year five and six, it all of a sudden got really hard. I just, I didn't want to say goodbye to students anymore because the heart work was so heavy. It was so heavy to constantly say goodbye. And so I think somewhere around year 10, I think my heart got a little cold. And my heart got cold and it was just easier not to feel so much than it was to feel so much and then have to say goodbye. It was easier to just close it off a little bit. It just makes it easier to say goodbye. And I've been so convicted that that is not the case. That's not what it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to come before the Lord and I'm supposed to bring that hurt and that pain and that, that weight of saying goodbye. I'm supposed to bring that to the Lord, and I'm supposed to process this with him because he is there for me. He knows me. And I want to invite you to do the same. Because yes, Moses dies. Yes, he lays down his life. But this is right and good. This is how we ourselves are to lead. We lay down our lives. We die before the Lord. And we allow Jesus to take the people his people into the promised land. We fully trust in the power of the gospel. We fully trust in the power of what the Lord has said and his word and his power. I'm gonna ask you to, to pray with me as we close. And just for a moment, I wanna ask you to do just a, a minute of reflection. What are the areas in your ministry and maybe in your life that you have yet to, to bring to the Lord in terms of just the process of being a pastor, the process of being a youth worker, the process of working with students. And I know we have a variety of experiences in here, people who are just entering into youth ministry, people who have been in youth ministry 30 plus years. But we carry this weight and we carry this burden. And I wanna encourage you by saying the Lord knows, the Lord understands. But it's Jesus' job to take the students over your labor is not in vain. And as God beautifully so buried Moses, may God deal tenderly with our hearts with all gentleness and kindness. So Heavenly Father, as we come before you with so many things to process from this conference, I pray, Lord, that you would receive our hearts, you would receive our minds, that you would help us to, to pray boldly and to pray more for our students, but that you would also help us to recognize that we are not the functional saviors of our students. You are. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to cling to that promise. 
May we be encouraged as we see how you treat your servant Moses, how you were a friend to him, how you did not compromise your character in the least bit, and yet you found a way to show your grace and your mercy. And isn't that what the gospel is for us? That the wrath and the death that we deserve You did not compromise your holiness in just simply brushing those things off, but no, you had a beautiful plan to send your son Jesus to die on our behalf and to live a righteous life on our behalf, the perfect life that we could not live. And when we put our faith in you, you gift that righteousness to us. Oh, how we need to trust in that and believe in that and preach that, and teach that, and embody that. So help us, Lord, to remember your promises, and to remember that in all circumstances, you are working all things for good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to The Rooted Podcast, where we hope to communicate the truths of the gospel and apply those truths to youth ministry. We would love for you to check out our website where we publish articles daily geared towards both youth ministers and parents. You will also find resources and more information about our conferences, regional events, and more at www.rootedministry.com.